paying too much for health insurance? Frustrated by high deductibles, network restrictions, and increasing premiums? There's a better way. Christian Healthcare Ministries. CHM is a Christian community delivering a robust, faith based solution to the high cost of healthcare. If your current health insurance has become more of a racket than a remedy, take back control of your healthcare at around half the price. Learn more and enroll today at chministries.org. That's chministries.org. I'm Dana Perino, and this is Perino on Politics. Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome to 2024. Yes, we are underway. Here's the election year we've been talking to you about for four years, three years, two years, and now one year. And here we are. There's a new stage of the presidential race, and we are entering that right now. In 2023, candidates spent a lot of time traveling across the country. They were introducing themselves and their platforms to voters. And the Iowa caucus in New Hampshire primary, that's it's just right around the corner, and there's not a lot of time left to persuade people. Plus, the two front runners, Biden on the Democratic side, of course, the incumbent, and President Trump are universally well known. They don't have to worry about name ID. Their challengers certainly do. So we are going to be watching closely to see which candidate rises to the top of this crowded primary field. Of course, President Trump in a dominant and commanding lead. But things can happen, especially in Iowa. Joining me back on the podcast today with a look ahead at what's in store for the election year is my friend, Republican strategist and co-founder of South and Hill Strategies, Colin Reed. Colin, welcome back. Hi, Dana. It's so nice to be back and Happy New Year to all of you and the listeners. Did you take a break from politics over the holiday? I did. I, I, like a lot of people, I put my I used my phone for things that were not related to work and took a break and reset. It's kind of like one of those uh, holiday snow globes. Everything gets shaken up. And then over the holidays, things <laughs> other than politics, and then we come back and everything looks anew in the new year. Okay, so let's just start there. So what do you think is the stage of the race that we're in right now? Because it's different to other elections that you and I have been familiar with in our lifetime. I don't really remember one quite like this. There are some similarities to other races you could point to, but this is quite interesting. It is. And the new year is starting in some ways the way the last year ended with this aura of inevitability around the two front runners, at least for their party's nomination. And yet, if you talk to a lot of people out there and the poll numbers back this up, there's just a wide swath of people who can't believe or don't want either of the two likely front runners to be the president this time next year. So it's so interesting. And on the Republican side, Donald Trump starts the year as he did, looking like this unsinkable force. But, you know, the Titanic looked pretty good when it was leaving the dock in Liverpool, too. So uh, now we're going to find out what the voters actually think and what they believe. And I know you had some of those voters on in Iowa on America's Newsroom this morning, and they're the ones who are going to get to render their opinion as opposed to just people like me and other pundits who get to uh, uh, spout their opinions about what they (laughs) think will happen. The voters will have the final say. It is interesting because for those not familiar with the caucus system, basically you have to really organize and get your people to turn out. They don't necessarily go to like a a polling booth. You go to these different gatherings. And one of the things I've understood is that President Trump said from the beginning that he will not lose Iowa, right? He did not want to be outworked or outorganized as he was in 2016 by Ted Cruz. And it seems to me that they've done a pretty good job of that. DeSantis did the full grass lead. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy did it twice. And Nikki Haley has been 
quite a big presence in Iowa, though she's had, I think, more of an edge in New Hampshire. But in Iowa for President Trump, he did not want any surprises. No. And that's if you look at the two early states, look, by the time the calendar flips from January to February, we're going to know the winners, uh, presumably in Iowa and New Hampshire. And if you look at those two states in a vacuum on the Republican side, President Trump's lead in Iowa has been larger and more durable uh, in the Hawkeye state than New Hampshire. It's like a 30 point lead, according to their RCP average. Uh, It's less so in New Hampshire. It's more like 20 and there were a few polls at the end of the year that had ambassador showing Ambassador Haley with some serious momentum. And there's other candidates there who have uh, had a strong showing as well, like Governor Christie. So uh, but look, the, I think you're right in that many people underestimate the former president's desire to win in Iowa because he didn't win uh, in 2016. Uh, Ted Cruz did. And in 2012, it was Rick Santorum. And in tw- 2007 or eight, it was Mike Huckabee. What all three of those uh, names have in common, they didn't end up becoming the nominee of their party. So if passes prologue, the winner of Iowa won't necessarily become the the standard bearer. And then we'll go on to New Hampshire. And that's admittedly where I have much more of a bias uh, toward. And as um, the governor, Sununa, the elder made famous, Iowa picks corn and New Hampshire picks presidents. <laughs> OK, well, let's talk about New Hampshire then, because. Uh, Iowa will be what it'll be. It'll be two weeks from today. We have some interesting things happening. Brett Baer announced that he and Martha McCallum will host a town hall with President Trump on Wednesday before the caucuses. That'll be on the 10th of January. That's at 9 p.m. There might be some other town halls actually to announce before then as well. Um, before, Actually, before we go to New Hampshire, or maybe this could encompass both Iowa and New Hampshire, we've been talking about politics for a while. People who listen to this politics obviously are a little bit more uh, maybe in the weeds on politics than others. How important are these last two weeks? You get the holidays behind you. And is that when people really start to focus and make some decisions? Especially in these early states, Dana, where they've been getting hammered with this information for months and months and months. And now both states are famously late breaking. They tend to make up their minds late. Uh, we're generally, as a, as a rule of thumb, we're moving out of the persuasion phase and into the get out the vote uh, phase. But with some with some big caveats. There are some debates coming up uh, in Iowa and New Hampshire, very close to when people will actually caucus or cast their votes that will uh, potentially be determinative. I saw the interview with the former president that you all announced uh, on the on America's Newsroom. So that's certainly a very noteworthy event that could have ramifications in, in terms of how how voters are making up their minds. But generally, we're getting more getting away from, hey, what do you think about this candidate or that candidate? And more so getting them getting them out, getting them out to vote and uh, that's that's a, at a different phase. Uh, and we're also getting into the expectations game. And it's possible to win one of these races and still lose, uh, as, as odd as that might sound. I mean, we, we talked about the aura of inevitability around former President Trump. If he performs less so than the 30-point lead he had in Iowa, it's very possible for somebody to say, hey, this guy doesn't have that strength that he's been suggesting. The voters have a different point of view than the pollsters have had. And uh, all of a sudden, that second place finisher can mm-hmm. spend the eight days in between Iowa and New Hampshire uh, pounding that case and making the case that that, that he or she should be the one to uh, carry that that, thinner, that that flag forward. In New Hampshire, people can register. Well, if you are registered with a different party, you can still vote in the Republican primary and well, vice versa. In, well, yeah, two really interesting three, I guess, three really interesting things in New Hampshire. One, uh, up until last fall, Democrats could register to vote in the in the Republican uh, primary. Two, 
independents up and now until the day of the primary day, there's no early voting in New Hampshire. They can vote. They can pull a lever uh, in, in, a, in the Republican primary. And the, the largest swath of the electorate is independents or unenrolled. New Hampshire's a famously... Uh, it's not it's not dominated by one political party or the other. It's why the independent vote is so interesting. And three, and most and it ties back into both of these, is the incumbent Democratic president, Joe Biden. His name is not on the ballot on the Democratic side. So there's a whole lot less to compete for if you're a middle of the road or if you're a Democrat. Yeah. What are you going to do? You're going to go write Joe Biden's name in? It seems pretty. Can you unlikely. remind people why Joe Biden's not on the ballot in New Hampshire? It's a long and complicated, but, <laughs> but the elevator, ver- the, the cliff note version is this. One, he, he didn't want New Hampshire to get rewarded uh, for its, its, first, its historic first-in-the-nation primary status due to his own inadequacies there. He finished in fifth place in 2020. In and, fact, uh, let me just stop you there. In 2020, I remember being there in New Hampshire. The results are coming in, and Biden didn't even stay for the results in New Hampshire. He had already left the state before the polls had closed. Yeah, he went to South Carolina, a state that he was always going to win by a country mile. Everybody fell in line and endorsed him, which was a remarkable feat for, for, for a fairly fractured party to do. And his candidacy went from DOA to uh, inevitable frontrunner seemingly mm-hmm. overnight. But, but that's why. So anyway, he did not want, he and his allies, the DNC, did not want the state of New Hampshire uh, to go first. And as a result, his name's not in the ballot. There's 20, so, 20 or so other candidates on the Democratic side whose name will be on the ballot. And they can, they, mm-hmm. and of course, anyone can write in Joe Biden. But for the sitting president of the United States, to, and this is going to be a number that gets discussed a lot over the next few weeks, is what number he has to clear in the state of New Hampshire to be able to, quote unquote, declare a victory. OK, so we will pay attention to that. I want to talk about President Biden and policies and polls in the next segment. But before we leave this one. Nikki Haley did make some news over the holiday break. And I don't think it's news that she wanted to make. She probably is glad that it was during the holiday that maybe people didn't notice. But let's fill people in on this question and how she answered what started the Civil War. And her simple answer was not slavery. It was more of a complicated answer about states' rights, which in the long run, Yes, of course, that also included that. But slavery was obviously the point. And her rivals, DeSantis, Trump, Christie, and Biden, all came after her pretty hard. Yeah. And and first, this speaks to the importance of these early states, because that event happened at a town hall meeting. And Nikki Haley's done a lot of town hall meetings. Governor Christie, that's his trademark up there in New Hampshire, is, is town hall meetings. Other candidates have done the same. And these unscripted settings where you just take questions from voters directly about what's on their mind. That is the hallmark of these early states. That is why these states have the importance they do. And that is why uh, they should remain at the top of the calendar. Now, her answer, by by virtue of doing these town halls so many times, at some point, you're inevitably going to have a question you wanted back. But it's very difficult, of course, to see Joe Biden in his state being able to conduct that kind of setting. So that's point one, which is town hall, town hall meetings matter. And there's a reason why a guy like Joe Biden doesn't want to do them because he can't. Uh, in terms of how this will be perceived, look, there's a number of different ways. First of all, she's had this meteoric rise of late and with momentum comes additional scrutiny. So every candidacy goes through its peaks and valleys. And this is one that uh, that this is one of the few times that she's really uh, faced withering criticism. I guess what we'll have to find out and a poll, pollsters don't tend to poll over the holidays. It's, it's an unreliable electorate. People are doing things other than paying attention to politics 
we'll see how much this this hurts her uh, or and, and whether or not it gets viewed as one, her giving a South Carolina answer in the state of New Hampshire, uh, where there's different views on how the civil war is perceived. Or two, and this is where it could potentially be more damaging to her candidacy. I don't think anyone thinks Nikki Haley is a racist, given her views on the Civil War, given what she did with the Confederate flag over there. But it's more an issue of whether or not she is willing to say different things to different people. And that can un- can theoretically undermine a candidacy's mm-hmm. credibility and authenticity. And we've seen candidates time, time and time again where that starts to stick. And, you know, time will tell. We don't have a poll. We don't know. This could have been a, a holiday week kerfuffle. Uh, that got blown out of proportion because there were reporters who needed content uh, or uh, it could be something else. But it's it's mm-hmm. it's it's too early to tell whether this is a John Kerry 2004 windsurfing moment. Oh, yes. And for those of you who are not familiar with that, you young people out there, Google that one, John Kerry and windsurfing in the 2004 election. All right, we're going to be right back with Perino on Politics. And we are back with Perino on Politics. Colin, I want to discuss President Biden and. I'm just mystified, I guess, that the Democrats seem to have this anxiety that they know that the president is very weak, that they know he's not able to actually, or even willing, actually, to change anything to make their circumstances better. I just honestly almost feel like things are so out of whack. It's almost professionally insulting if you're in political communications to look at this and say, how do they not see how bad the situation is? It's his overall approval number, but also they are creating a whole new swing voter of young people, Hispanic voters, and African-American voters that could turn this election around. Carl Rove was on America's Newsroom and he had this whiteboard that showed just a change in a little bit of those voters going from Biden to Trump or to a third party would just devastate the Biden coalition, and yet they just seem to be whistling past the graveyard. It's weird to me. How do you see it? I think there's two ways to look at this. One, there's the numerical issues. 72% of people don't want Biden to seek re-election. Roughly the same think he's too old to be president. And those are issues that people have eyes. People can judge for themselves whether or not uh, he's up for the job, and there's nothing they can really do about it. Uh, Father time is, is undefeated. But So that's one. The other thing I would say is President Biden didn't necessarily win in 2020, as in he Trump, President Trump lost and President Biden was the vessel. But it wasn't as though people were getting behind the idea of Joe Biden, uh, the candidate. They just wanted something else and what they had. But from that point forward, President Biden didn't govern like that. He governed as though he had a mandate. He governed as though he'd won this huge sweeping coalition victory with all sorts of people flocking to his message. And the legislation he's pushed thus far has not been anything. It's been further to the left than Barack Obama. It's been further to the left than you could argue FDR. And I think he might and Biden might keep his 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 primary uh, electorate uh, happy. But this election is going to be decided between 60 on the low end and 400,000 voters in six states, basically six battleground states. And voters like that didn't sign up for all the green giveaways for these green new deals for all the stuff that Biden has pushed and pushed and pushed as this four left candidate. Uh, that's not what they got. They wanted something new. They wanted someone who was going to bring the country together. So the the but the candidacy of Joe Biden has not been fulfilled by his his performance in office. And that's where I think you're seeing a lot of those folks in the middle 
turn off. Now, to your point, I'm sorry this is a long question to a short answer. No, it's great. A lot of his voters in the left are also restless. There's key key parts of his constituency that are falling off because of what he's doing in Israel, because they don't perceive him as 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 being foreign up left. So he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. But these elections, these general elections are always decided by people in the middle. And right now they don't they don't have a, they don't like a lot to see. There's not a lot to see or like in, in the in the idea of a continued Joe Biden presidency. I'm going to run a theory by you that I've kind of just crystallized in my mind. So the Biden team and people who are anti-Trump or never Trump will say Trump is a chaos president. He causes chaos. He attracts chaos. And nobody wanted chaos, right? So in 2020, President Trump loses. As you said, Biden doesn't necessarily win. But part of the reason is chaos, right? People would like a little bit more stability. They would like progress, but, you know, incremental progress. Biden, on the other hand, is governing over chaos. So there is chaos at the southern border. I've never seen anything like it. How they, the White House can look at these images every day that they are no doubt seeing. I know that they at least keep one eye on Fox News. It, but it's not just Fox News. This weekend oh, on Meet the Press um, and on the Sunday show, CBS Sunday Morning, they're all talking about it. I see the little tree every morning where they have... Um, in our studio, while our show is on America's Newsroom, you can also see CNN, MSNBC, and Fox Business. MSNBC and CNN are also covering the border, not like extensively necessarily. They might have a different perspective, but the images are out there and people see the chaos. There's also crime and it feels chaotic. You live in the nation's capital. There's obviously that. The White House will say, well, look at the statistics. Crime is down. Well, Murder is down in some places, yes, but crimes that make people's lives tolerable, especially in cities, those crimes are up. And a lot of those crimes are not being prosecuted, so therefore they are not recorded. There is also chaos in foreign policy, right? You have the situation in Ukraine, you have Israel, you have the growing problems that you are looking at in the Middle East, especially when it comes to trade routes. What about the China-Taiwan issue? President Xi Jinping was very clear this week what he thinks, and that is the reunification with Taiwan is going to happen. And I would imagine they want it to happen on Biden's watch. So I'm just thinking about all of this chaos. And if you give voters a choice between the chaos that you remember (laughs) from the Trump administration that might have driven you crazy at the time and the chaos that you're experiencing now, maybe even also you could add the educational point about chaos for parents. And parents looking at us going, everything feels out of control. Am I hitting on something here that might actually be why you see the numbers that they are, that if the election were held today, President Trump would win by a lot? Well, I think you are, Dana, and I'll add one more to your list for consideration, which is the one of the 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 left or the anti-Trump's calling card has been this quote-unquote threat to democracy that they yeah. allege former president poses. Now he's the one being kicked off the ballot by all these judges in these states. So there's yeah. another one that just kind of feels as though the the paradigm has shifted. Look, you know, on immigration, people have eyes. And you're right. This has been something that the mainstream media has done their best to ignore and just dismiss as some sort of uh, right-wing talking point. And now it's impossible for them to do it because the, the, the numbers are so stark. As it relates to the economic situation, I think one of the big mistakes, and this is true of anything in life, is when you put your name on something, you better be damn sure that it's going to work. And that applies across the board. 
and trying to own Bidenomics when you've got things like childcare up 32%, rent up 28%, used cars up 35%, groceries, you name it, go down the list. That's what people associate right. with Right, I should have mentioned that, that the in- inflation makes you feel as a consumer that things are chaotic. That's right. And everything feels more difficult. Get on a domestic flight. You just feel like you, you've, you're, you have like low degree of confidence you're going to get there uh, on time. God help you if you mm-hmm. have a layover somewhere, your bag's mm-hmm. probably going to get lost. There's just a number of things that just feel like life has gotten much more challenging. And this is the argument. This is the four years ago argument. And uh, whether or not life is better now than it was in 2019, yeah, of course, the, the Biden team will, will talk about the pandemic and the, the disruption and got it. But there's at some point you got to run out of excuses and you got to start leading. I would say the other thing that is so interesting about this race is former President Trump has always done better in politics when he's been the insurgent, when he's been the candidate who's just upending the apple cart as opposed to the one who's trying to defend it. And that's one where he's now much more comfortable in this setting. This is more of a 2016 setting where he's running against an entrenched incumbent, which was Hillary Clinton, basically, who was running as Barack Obama's third term or Joe Biden now. It's the same group of figures. And President Trump can offer himself as the alternative. So the same thing that propelled Joe Biden in 2020 might sink in, it might sink him this time around. So interesting. I think I might have to write something about chaos theory or else I'll just, nah, I'm just going to talk about it. Uh, who has time to, to do that? I'll leave that writing to you, Colin. We'll be back with more Perino on politics in just a moment. Welcome back to Perino on politics. My friend Colin Reed with me today. And I'm wondering some of the things that you might be looking at, what I might be missing at this point. Something I've been thinking about is the role of technology in this next election artificial intelligence. What do you see on that front in terms of people needing to be aware that we we could see some sort of deep fake audio or video, whether from one campaign against another or from a foreign government into our politics. And I'm not sure how we're going to deal with that. Yeah, politics tends to be downstream from uh, society as a whole. And I think that's especially true with AI, which is there's a lot of people who still are trying to figure out how they're going to use it in their everyday lives. And then I think it'll translate downstream to 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 the to the political arena. I'm not quite sure it's there yet. In 2024, do you remember that someone produced an AI ad earlier in the cycle that caused all sorts of uh, outrage and controversy. But I think by, by the time the next uh, the next campaign is here, it will for sure be uh, a major pillar uh, of what uh, of 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 the discussion. So uh, that one's a, that one's a TBD in my book. And then we have the idea, the situation on Capitol Hill, which is there's a new speaker, Mike Johnson. He's got a big task in front of him. 17 days from today, which is today is January 2nd. 17 days from today, the government would run out of money again. And the right, the Republicans are saying, we are going to demand some changes, especially on border policy before we fund the government. You've got Ukraine needing aid, Israel needing aid, a White House that feels, to me, completely on their back foot, unable to lead or persuade. And you only now have 220 Republicans. There's 213 Democrats. There's two vacancies. Basically, I'm just giving you those numbers, everyone, just so you understand the margins are so small. And you have a lot of Republicans that make up the coalition that won 
in districts where Biden carried the day. Now, Biden might not carry the day in those districts again, but the Democratic Party has their sights on those districts to change them. So you've got some wild politics going into this next 17 days. It is. Add that to the list of other unprecedented heading into this election year, because typically what happens is Congress kind of fades away. The president will do his state of the union, his or her state of the union, and then in late January, early February, and then from there, the presidential race takes over and those two party standard bearers kind of take over. It hasn't worked that way thus far uh, because the, 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 of all the chaos that's, that's, that's surrounded Capitol Hill. You're also, Dana, flying into this situation where the House, which is the control of the House, which is so razor thin, is likely to be determined by the presidential top of the ticket, whereas the Senate uh, no matter how you slice and dice it, the Senate is going to be uphill sledding for the Democratic Party, given the uh, the incumbents they they have in states that are red, no matter how you chalk it up. So it's it's not unheard of that we, the Republicans could theoretically struggle to maintain uh, control of the House while adding to their Senate majority. And, and we could go back to divided government, no matter how you look at it, but in, in reverse order than where we're at right now, where Republicans have the House and Democrats have the Senate. Are you watching any of the gubernatorial races? The gubernatorial races tend to play out in a silo of their own. People view governors as 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 figures unto themselves. They don't necessarily associate them with the national party. It's why figures like Charlie Baker and Larry Hogan and Chris Sununu and Phil those Scott are all Republicans Vermont, in all Republicans. Democratic states, kind of. Yeah, yeah. and then in, in in you know one thing to keep an eye on is in Louisiana where the Republicans just knocked out the last. A uh, Democrat governor in in the region there, and John Bell Edwards, who well, he was term limited out, but a Republican's replacing him, so that state's gone uh, gone gone ruby red. So uh, th- you know, look, these governors are able to, if they're smart, run to figures unto themselves. They don't get necessarily attached to all the chaos here in D.C., and that usually works to their advantage. Uh, if you're in a state where your party's not popular whatsoever, right? I just wanted to mention one more thing about the Biden administration. I think this is a sign of weakness. And I think when they talk about democratic norms, this fact that Biden canceled the traditional end of year press conference, it doesn't show strength to me. And that it does not show, you know, our allies, even our adversaries. It doesn't show a a strong democratic commitment when you do things like just basically cancel a simple press conference, which I guess is not simple for them right now. But the again, the contrast with President Trump is going to be something really to watch. And President Trump loves to talk to the media. Biden, it just seems unable to. And Colin, I, uh, I respect people. I respect the office of the president. I respect my elders. And in this case, it just finds, I find myself not hesitant to criticize, but almost feel like it's interesting. I can't even, I don't even want to say the word that I feel rude pointing out President Biden's age, but it is just so stark and everyone ages at a different level. I get that. This feels really uncomfortable for me. And I think you can hear it in my voice. I'm like, I'm not as shy about giving my opinions, but in this case, I just feel like, am I being rude to somebody who is obviously older, but also they're the commander in chief. They're the ones who are supposed to be the leader of the free world, showing what it is to be a strong leader, leading a democracy. And I just feel like we don't have that. 
at some point you have to have confidence in the horse you're riding. And they, the, the, the people around President Biden want to say that they, they believe in him, that he's up for the job, that he's ready for another four years. Everyone ages differently, find some new jokes that they can insert there. But mm-hmm. the thing is, they do things like they cancel press conferences. Or what, what I find particularly galling is when he'll go out and say something that doesn't make any sense, and then they'll have some unnamed advisor in the press saying, well, that's not actually what he meant. He meant this. And it can be, a, I remember in the fall, it was about issues like China and Taiwan and foreign policy. And the press, I mean, the, the, the rest of the mainstream media has to hold them to account because yeah. of who's in charge here. Right. Uh, and to just be undermined by your staff, you're the commander in chief. I mean, it's- Do you know what drives me the most crazy? And this will be the last point I make. Um, the White House will want the president to make a little news. And so they will use an opportunity when he's walking out to Marine One or coming back from an event and the helicopter blades are still whirring and his voice is so weak, he can't project. So you can't actually pull a soundbite out of that. You're, no one's going to be able to use that. And you sometimes you have to put the caption underneath so you can actually understand what he was saying. And this is how they try to make news. That drives me up a wall. Here's one of the big mistakes they're making, and politics at its core is not that complicated. But give people a choice between strong and weak, and they'll take strong every time. And no matter how you look at it, President Biden is not checking that strong box. Okay, I think that's a good place to leave it. But we have a little quiz, and you get to choose between three categories. Candidate LinkedIn, presidential potpourri, or presidential pets. Oh, no, Dana does sports. I guess I'll go back to our, we'll go back to the pets. Okay. The Reagans had several pets during their time at the White House, including two cats who were named A, Bonnie and Clyde, B, Cleo and Sarah, or C, Starsky and Hutch. Wow. Boy, that's a tough one. I didn't even know they had cats, and I know a lot about the Reagans. Yeah. Mm. I'm I'm going to go with B. Oh, good choice. Cleo and Sarah. That was those were the names of the cats. Um I'd like to say I knew it, but I'll be honest, it was a blind guess. Yeah, that is so interesting. Um I'm for dogs in the White House, but also I mean, you know one thing, my I have another theory. When something is going wrong for a White House, like everything goes wrong. It's so hard to get a foothold so that you can climb back up. And when Biden's had to get rid of his dog commander and send him off to go and live somewhere else because he was biting Secret Service agents at the White House. I was like, these guys can't buy a break. They just can't. Even their dog. Yeah. What's the old saying? If you want a friend in Washington, get a dog. President Biden couldn't even do that. And Charles Krauthammer used to say, if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog. But actually, you should get two in case the first one turns on you. (laughs) (laughs) Which would never happen to you. You have Tilly. And we love that dog indeed. Colin Reed, thank you so much for being on Perino on Politics. And Happy New Year, everyone. Thank you, Dana. Always great to be here. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.